If people say they're not going to vote for you and they publicly say it six times, you got to believe them at some point. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, January 5th. Today, Tara Palmieri joins me to discuss the historic drama on Capitol Hill that is the vote for Speaker of the House. Tara explains why Kevin McCarthy is stalling out in his bid, what MAGA Republicans really want, and why all of this is bad news for a guy named Donald Trump. And later, Teddy Schleifer stops by to discuss the paranoia in Sam Bankman-Fried's inner circle as prosecutors move forward with what could be the financial trial of the century. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined by Tara Palmieri, and she's going to get right into it. Tara, what's the deal with Kevin McCarthy tonight? We're recording this Wednesday night in full transparency. You might be listening to this on Thursday morning. What's the latest with McCarthy's stalled, to put it politely, bid to become Speaker of the House? So right now they've adjourned. They broke out into a working group and it's kind of like they're they're really this is the last moment. It's a telltale moment. And he's got to strike a deal now. I mean, it's been six votes where he's been shot down. And if he doesn't come out of this with something, I think it's not going well because you've already got people like Ken Buck who have said they're done voting for McCarthy now and want uh-huh. another candidate like Steve Scalise and they're saying his name aloud, you know, on CNN, whereas I've been reporting it's been the low-key known thing that he's the dark horse underdog ready to get in there. And the fact that they're starting to say it out loud and they're not going to let this continue because they know it actually plays really badly at home. It makes it look like the Republicans are in disarray and in chaos. So I think what's happening is that we we keep writing about the Kevin onlys, but I don't really believe that these people are as loyal to Kevin McCarthy as they say. I think they're more like Kevin agnostic. It takes a lot of guts to get up on the House floor and vote against the the person who is slated to be speaker, who's already in the speaker's office, even though he has not been sworn Mm -hmm. in yet. So I think that when presented with another option, a lot of these people will flip easily. I don't think there's really going to be a band of 20 holdouts for Kevin McCarthy. And right now he's got to show that momentum is going in the other direction, which is down. (laughs) And he hasn't been able to do that, right? It's been 20 votes consistently. And it's going to be more if he doesn't strike some sort of deal. And it's the moment of truth, basically, right now. Yeah, so they're they're gathering privately, and I think at, at, at the moment that we're speaking, and I think you're right. The If there is more and more of these show votes are not going to change the story. If anything is going to change, if people are going to move to Steve Scalise or someone else we don't even know about, it'll happen behind closed doors. There'll be some conversations. Someone will gather momentum, but... I think the the big momentum story for me, and I'm glad you mentioned it, was Ken Buck coming out on CNN. And he's, uh, for people who don't know, Republican from Colorado, ran for Senate back in the day and lost. But he's like an OG Tea Party guy. Right. But also, like, you know, he can hang out with the Freedom Caucus dudes, but he can hang out with the establishment dudes, whatever that means these days. And he, you know, he's pretty well respected. <laughs> and for him to come out and say... I just can't vote for McCarthy again, by the way he did on the following round after saying that. But it just opened the door and gave air cover to others 
to say, okay, well, if Ken said it, maybe we can move. And so my other question, Tara, is we sat through two days of this voting and it was really embarrassing for McCarthy. Why didn't people move more quickly to Steve Scalise or why haven't they yet? Because he seems to be the consensus next choice. He's more culturally conservative than McCarthy and could probably you know, be palatable to the Freedom Caucus that kind of just wants a scalp. They want McCarthy's scalp, it seems like. Um, right. why, why didn't things move more quickly to Scalise on Wednesday? You know what? I got to say really quickly, because I remember I said it was the moment of truth, just literally telling you how quickly this is moving. Matt Gates just walked out of that meeting and basically said things have not changed and that they're never going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. So if that really was a tell all telltale, you know, how this is going to go. It's not looking good at all. They just all walked out of that meeting. Lauren Boebert, they're not voting for him. So it's funny. Someone, you know, here, here's one member saying, if people say they're not going to vote for you and they publicly say it six times, you got to believe them at some point, you know? So it's time to move on, I think, is what I think that's the, I think they, that McCarthy team hyped up this meeting. They kept saying there was optimism. Things were moving in the right direction. And the Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates a group that's voting as a block. Mm-hmm. It only takes four of them to tank his speakership. They're all saying, basically, I mean, the two, the loudest voices are saying we're not voting for him. I mean, I... Kevin McCarthy's had two months to get his house in order and come up with the votes. Obviously, back in November, some votes were still being counted to, to see who would, by how much rather Republicans would control a house. But if he came into this week not having the votes... And the holdouts were between five and 20 MAGA Freedom Caucus types. Like, those people weren't going to flip. So he came in just kind of hoping that things would change. And I'm not aware of, and you have better sources on the Hill than I do, of any sort of like behind the scenes strategy that they had. It just was kind of like people were just going to show up and vote and hope that people started to fade. They made a lot of concessions. They did. They changed rules. They gave them a lot more power. Um, they brought it down to, I think, five people to vacate the speaker, to basically call a motion to, to vote against the speaker. Obviously, the Freedom Caucus wanted to be just one vote the way it used to be. But he made a lot of concessions. It wasn't enough. He hoped that the pressure of it all, um, the pressure cooker of forcing a vote over and over again, like he probably knew this was going to happen. That would maybe get people in line he believed that peer pressure would probably work for these people or the pressure mm-hmm. cooker. He didn't want to recess. That was something that was very, I was surprised to see him recessing on Monday because he believed he could just wear everyone out, right? I also don't think, I think they were perhaps not being completely transparent with the fact that it was more than four or five people who were no's. I think it grew to maybe as many as 20s, you know, and they knew that before the vote. It's interesting that they would go forward and do that anyway. I think he was just gambling. I mean, what else was he going to do back out again? He just thought this is this is the only way it's going to happen. I've just got to gamble and stare them down and play chicken. And like, it looks like you've lost. So Scalise then seems to be the next best option. Is there anyone else? I mean, I don't know. So it could maybe be someone like uh, maybe they vote actually for someone like Jim Jordan. Maybe I've heard hmm. talk of like Fred Upton, who was like a former member from Michigan, possibly. <laughs> maybe uh, Elise Stefanik, you know, I don't know. It To be completely honest, like it just seems to me that they could go through a few other people who don't get the votes, but that would be better for Steve Scalise, even though he is the most obvious person as the former majority whip. 
He knows a lot of the members from the from the moderate wing. He's close with Brian Fitzpatrick to the House Freedom Caucus, where he's, you know, had to deal with those members. And he was on the Republican Study Committee. So he kind of has sort of the veneer of being more conservative than Kevin McCarthy, but he's really not. He probably has the same voting record. And in fact, something I wrote about was that, you know, the pro-McCarthy people are floating the idea that, oh, he stood by Liz Cheney longer than Kevin McCarthy did, because that was a big uh, ding on McCarthy, that he stood by mm-hmm. Liz Cheney for too long, or they're saying he's too soft on am- amnesty. I mean, they're kind of already floating this idea that Scalise isn't going to be conservative enough. But to me, the writing was on the wall when Matt Gates said in an interview to the New York Post, and he's pretty much like the ringleader of this group, real diehards, never mm-hmm. Kevins, mm-hmm. we would take Scalise. And he said it privately. And I've spoken to a source close to that group that said they wouldn't demand that Scalise accept, you know, just one vote to mo- in a motion to vacate because they trust him and they didn't trust Kevin McCarthy. So to me, it's been obvious that the person who could get the hard nose has always been Steve Scalise. And the, you know, only Kevin group, they didn't ask for anything in exchange for their loyalty to him. So that kind of makes me think that they're probably easier to win over on the other side as well. I think it really is about getting the hard nose to vote for you. So just stepping back from the ins and outs of what's happening and, and the moment right now, what's your theory of just why? Like, why is McCarthy not able to get over the hump? And like, I'm thinking back to like past Republican leaders, at least in my lifetime, like they had some calling card, like Newt was an ideas guy. And then, you know, like Hastert and DeLay and Boehner even were operators who could like pass legislation and still talk to the uh, opposing party in the White House. Ryan was also like an ideas guy and seen as conservative enough. And then McCarthy comes along as Republican leader and like his calling card seems to be, I can talk to Trump people and I can talk to establishment people. There's no interest on his part in talking to Democrats. The White House basically ices him out all the time. Pelosi doesn't talk to him very much. Um, yeah, they all don't like him. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's like if your calling card is I will I just want to be liked and will tell everyone what they want to hear. And there's nothing kind of underneath that. No mm. one's no one either respects you or is scared of you. <laughs> and so, like, you know, people always ask, is it better to be feared or loved? And McCarthy's kind of neither within his caucus. What's your what's your theory of why he just can't get there? Yeah, he's not feared or loved. I don't I think that he's has a lot of friends, but I don't think there's a lot of like deep support or loyalty. They always say he's not, you know, um, a true policy wonk, although I'm not sure that many people really are anymore. It's become yeah. a, a lot of showboats in Congress. But regardless, they don't trust him. They think he's, you know, somebody for everybody. Uh, they never liked him. And that's pretty much if this really is a popularity contest, if it is high school, like we say all the time, then <laughs> he's just not the most popular guy. Sorry, you're not going to win the superlative. But the other thing is that I found to be really interesting in all this is the weakness of Trump right now. You know, Donald mm-hmm. Trump, who fair, like he could have probably gone harder after the Never Kevins if he really wanted to, putting them on some sort of like you know, uh, takedown list the way that he did against people who impeached him, if he really cared, mm-hmm. which I don't think he does about Kevin McCarthy that much. I think Kevin McCarthy flatters him and flattery gets him everywhere, gets gets you everywhere with Trump. And I think he felt like as, you know, the person running for president, trying to be the part leader of the party, he had to weigh in and support McCarthy. But where was he during that hour and a half or whatever it was before the first vote? Like, 
Kevin McCarthy really could have used Trump's support at that point, even a truth social uh, message, something, <laughs> um, before the actual vote. Because once you get shot down, it only gets worse from there, right? So it was like, that was the moment of truth. Trump could have stepped up and did something. He really didn't. And he kind of half-assed, gave some interviews saying, yeah, we'll see. You know, he could be a great speaker. But he's not putting his full-throated endorsement behind McCarthy. And I know that he's been making calls, but you can't even flip Matt Gates. Like, Matt Gates loves Trump, right? And you can't get him or Lauren Boebert to, to, to vote for McCarthy, I just feel like he's lost his juice or the party has pretty much run away from him or run ahead of him. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. It just seems like, but of course, they're just doing exactly the same thing that Kevin McCarthy is doing with Trump, giving him flattery, right? Telling him he should be speaker. And I'm sure at that point, Trump is like completely neutralized. You're never on an enemy list when you're saying you should be speaker. So he's not really doing enough to flex, but I still think that this looks like a loss for Trump. I agree, and I'm glad you brought that up. It just feels like the only reason Trump is endorsing McCarthy is, and and maybe making some calls for him, is he wants to show he's still the leader of the Republican Party, and he wants to be able to flex his muscle. But as you said, Gates isn't listening. Lauren Boebert even came out, <laughs> not against Trump, but she challenged Trump on the floor of the House on Wednesday, basically like saying he, you know, he's he can't get McCarthy through the finish line. And I think you're correct that the Republican Party, whether implicitly or explicitly, is starting to move on. And and people like Matt Gates and Boebert know the game now. You know, they yeah. they're playing it for fundraising, individual attention, and neither of them need Donald Trump anymore to be famous in their own universe. And I think that's that's coming into play here. And Trump just does not look good. And it's one more notch against him in his 2024 bid. Right. And also, Trump spent a lot of time attacking the swamp. And he wants to pick the leader of the swamp, right? I mean, yeah. that's the thing. It's like, you can't vilify Congress and then decide to pick who runs it. And this guy has been around for longer than you, by the way. So he's one of the original alligators. Um, it's just <laughs> like, the all they can't keep up with their own messaging. And I think... Voters distrust Congress, right, by nature. These voters, or at least Republican voters do, they know that. And so it, it taps into their fears about, you know, these powerful lizards in Washington who don't have their, you know, best interests. So, of course, they're going to believe their congressmen, many of whom are very popular in their districts. I think Matt Gates rep- represents the villages, the very, you know, right-wing mm-hmm. villages in Florida. And, like, yeah, he's a star there. So... It's kind of like he's not worried about reelection. Really, none of these people are. Mm-hmm. Even Bobert, who barely won because their star is just rising through this whole exercise. Yes. And once you've got enough uh, standing applauses at enough CPACs and like turning point conventions, you know that you also have a life in that universe, even if you leave Congress and you have a way to make money and make friends. <laughs> yeah, So it's exactly. like not like they even need to be in Congress to be oh, um, yeah. MAGA famous. I don't think they even want to be. Yeah, exactly. Tara, I'm going to let you go. Uh, right before you got on, you told me you had a source texting you, which uh, I need you to get back to right now. So thanks for okay. joining us. Uh, look right. forward to your reporting tomorrow. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, joined by Teddy Schleifer with some updates on Sam Bankman-Fried, who was 
just arraigned on Tuesday in New York, where he pleaded not guilty to the eight charges against him. The actual trial is not scheduled to start until October, but Teddy, what was the mood like around the courtroom and among the people in Sam's inner circle as this was all happening? So full disclosure, was not there, but I was kind of struck, Ben, by a video of Sam entering the courthouse in Manhattan on Tuesday. It looks like you know, Sam is frankly just amazed at, at the moment that he's in. You know, he's got these two, you know, huge security guards clearing a path for him into the door, you know, surrounded by paparazzi and news photographers. He's got a backpack slung over his shoulders, um, wearing a suit, chewing, looks like gum, maybe like the slightest uh, smidge of, of a smirk kind of as he entered the courthouse, just understandably like, what what happened here? What happened to my life? So, right, this was this was the first appearance in, in the U.S., at least, by Sam Bankman-Fried, pleaded not guilty to eight counts. The court said that the trial would begin October 2nd. So a lot's going to happen over the next nine months, both in terms of a possible deal that could be struck between prosecutors and SBF. Obviously, SDNY is right now trying to get other cooperators. They have promised more and more documents that are going to be coming out publicly. And in the meantime, there's going to be this information vacuum that I've been writing about, which is leading to sort of a freak out in every corner of the SBF universe. The number of rumors that are flying about indictments or you know possible cooperating witnesses makes your head spin. And whether or not these things are true is sort of beside the point. Right now, everyone thinks they're true and is you know freaking out and uh, you know waiting for the next shoe to drop. There, there's a vacuum right now of information, and people are filling it with wild-eyed theories. Some true, most not. Yeah, of course. You know, th- there could be a deal over the next nine months. The prosecutors in this case have just begun building this case. A lot more evidence is going to come together as they are investigating what really happened here. And so, you know, they, they could exert leverage on Sam to close this thing before it even gets to trial. But obviously, as part of that process, they're going to be reaching out to people who have been in Sam's inner circle over the last couple of years, which includes lots of people in Democratic circles, in Washington, in the worlds of philanthropy and finance. What are those people saying and, and expressing um, following Sam's arrest? Is, is there anxiety? Is there paranoia? The, those are good words for it. Th- there is a sense that everyone's going to get the knock on the door at some point. You know, right now, this case was put together pretty quickly. I mean, typically these things can take, you know, years. You know, right now, the case kind of preceded maybe having all of the evidence. I mean, obviously, there was enough evidence that, you know, SDNY was able to get a grand jury to indict. But the, the, the sense in Sam's inner circle is that there's going to be uh, more shoes to drop, more information requests. You know, the kind of the watchword uh, of the moment is document retention, right? You want to make sure that you have everything that prosecutors ask for because they will ask for it. Um, you know, congressional campaigns, super PACs, philanthropic entities, frankly, you know, family, everybody in, in Sam's inner circle, I believe at some point, will certainly be asked to cooperate and will ultimately have to decide which uh, time for choosing, you know, to quote Ronald Reagan. So ultimately, there, there's no kind of putting your head down and, and, you know, moving on with your life. And that's unfortunate for some people. I mean, like, you know, we'll, we'll see where, where the blame ultimately lies. But uh, folks did not expect when they, you know, took money from Sam Bankman-Fried or, you know, took a consulting gig with Sam Bankman-Fried that they would be have their lives, you know, torn uh, asunder and to have to pay, you know, thousands of dollars in legal bills. Um, 
and certainly if you're family of him, you know, uh, you you are in the crosshairs just by virtue of your blood. So so ultimately, this is this is the beginning, but the the end of this is going to be people getting contacted by SDNY, the Sovereign District of New York, looking for information and, and possible cooperation. You'd also reported that in addition to these um, seven charges that are, are related to financial crimes, to to fraud, to conspiracy, there's this sort of mysterious eighth charge that mm. SDNY levied against Sam, accusing him of some kind of campaign finance violation. Obviously, again, as you've reported, you know, this is a guy who had everyone in Washington on speed dial. He worked with tons of Democrats. He donated to all these different campaigns. And here's this campaign finance violation that's sort of hanging out there without any details filled in so far. Presumably, that is also contributing to a lot of this anxiety that people don't know precisely Correct. what that means. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, ultimately, the, the eighth count of this, which is the uh, straw donation allegation, is very vague. It's like, well, someone donated money in the name of another entity and... Um, you know, SDNY has said they're going to be producing more documents about what that allegation is. But as you know, Ben, like that's not really going to calm calm the nerves uh, of anyone. Ultimately, people are filling in the ambiguities on their own. Uh, everyone thinks that like, is SDNY talking about me? Um, that sort of speaks to the paranoia of the moment. Yeah. And there's also the potential reputational damage too, right? I mean, nobody wants sure. to see their text messages made public poured over on Twitter. No, nobody wants um, their emails showing up in a PDF that's released publicly. I mean, this is um, really high stakes for a lot of people for whom discretion is a big part of their business. Right. I mean, look, I mean, uh, you know, it reminds me of, of like the, the Elon text messages that, you know, we talked about on the show a couple months ago, right, where, you know, a- any just day-to-day interactions with, with anyone else, you know, when, when part of a legal proceeding can look can look awful. Um, and especially like in, in this world of politics and, and philanthropy where lots of operatives like kind of like to maintain a low profile, I would say that's true of the SAM team especially. You know, these people could become household names. Like, like there, there is some uh, like speculation for everything that's happening in, in Washington today with seemingly a dysfunctional uh, House GOP. Like there's concerns that like, are they going to like subpoena various political aides to like testify before Congress? Like is Gabe Bankman freed? You know, Sam's younger brother going to become this like, you know, whipping whipping post for, <laughs> for like Jim Jordan. Like uh, I have no idea if any of these things are, are, are realistic, but like the fear and concern um, speaks to just the the kind of surreal nature of this whole thing that like anything is possible um, and, and people are preparing for the worst. Well, speaking of mystery and ambiguity, I also saw that lawyers for Sam asked the court to redact the names of the two people who co-signed his $250 million bail. Do you have any yes. sense whatsoever of what is going on over there? Sure. So so this was like, I think it's fair to say this was like a surprising decision. So for folks who have not followed every twist and turn of, of the Sam proceedings, essentially, he was let out on, you know, this pretty uh, massive bail package, $250 million. There's some technicalities that I'll spare listeners about. But but essentially, there are other people in addition to Sam's parents that are guaranteeing terms of the bail who are, I believe it's two people they, they've said, um, or two entities um, who are undisclosed. And the court decided to protect those identities of the people who are guaranteeing the bail, basically out of a concern for privacy and out of a concern for security of Sam's family. Sam right now is in Palo Alto at the house in which he grew up near the Stanford campus. 
and ultimately is going to be there probably for months, right? Uh, and and there's the street is blocked off. You know, you can't exactly just waltz over there. And Sam's attorneys argue that the parents especially were in physical danger because of just the scrutiny that has befallen upon them over the last couple of months. So I know that media organizations are going to be pressing to see um, whether or not those identities can be disclosed, because you could certainly argue that like court records are public records. And I know that media organizations right now are going to press to make the identities of those people public because, you know, court records uh, are typically public records. And, you know, understanding who is enabling uh, Sam Bankman-Fried to fight this uh, litigation from SDNY uh, so aggressively is in the public interest. And that's going to be the argument between there's going to be a media subplot to this about whether or not the identity of those people um, will be public. Who knows if it's newsworthy or not? Like it could be some person that the family knows. Obviously, they have well uh, connections across Stanford and are uh, well connected in the Silicon Valley uh, establishment. But uh, certainly a, a unusual and intriguing and decision to keep this secretive. And, you know, <laughs> that is also going to further. Uh, stoke internet sleuths and the general general sense of paranoia that surrounds everything SBF right now. Yeah, of course. I mean, we, we don't want to be too conspiratorial here. There may be very innocent and sort of prosaic explanations for all of this. It's just fascinating, obviously, Sam having said that he only has $100,000 left in his bank account. Um, Correct. His parents' home, I think, was assessed at like $4 million or something. A lot of money in, in a lot of the country, maybe not so much in Palo Alto, where the real estate market is out of control. But obviously, Sam's got to be spending a huge amount of money on lawyers. There's the security guards you mentioned who are clearing a path through the paparazzi as he went to the um, right as he went into the courtroom. So, so obviously, there's a, a huge amount of money that is being spent here and is going to be spent over the next nine months. Um, truly astronomical sum. So, we'll be following that storyline super closely. Teddy, thanks for stopping by. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 